This week on the show, we cover the history of FreeBSD, the early days of FreeBSD that Clara Systems does, the Mesh VPN using OpenBSD and WireGuard setup, the FreeBSD's foundation uh, sponsoring of LLDB improvements, a hosting for your CryptPad web office suite with OpenBSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 385, WireGuard VPN Mesh, recorded for the 6th of January 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Treuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone. In the new year, we give you the latest headlines of BSD in the bigger space, uh, as always. And we start with the history of FreeBSD, part three, the early days of FreeBSD. This is an article over on my company's website, uh, written by John Paul, uh, that talks about basically the time from just after 3.6 BSD first came out through to the release of FreeBSD and FreeBSD 2.0. It talks about all the fun times, including the unofficial patch kit, and, you know, how it was thought someday there would be an official one and then other things happen instead. And then the unofficial FAQ and what that was and how that went. And then through the 3D6 BSD, uh, the Snapshot project and actually having releases. Uh, and then after the Snapshot project kind of didn't work out, after considering a bunch of different names, including BSD Free 86 and Free 86 BSD, uh, the FreeBSD project settled on the name free bsd and it's still the same today yep uh and then after uh all the craziness with the at&t lawsuit and so on after that was all settled we had FreeBSD 2.0 which had you know all the existing net2 users would be strongly encouraged to switch to the 4.4 bsd light and so the FreeBSD developers immediately started working to rebase all their work on that 4.4 bsd light and avoid all of the uh the wrangling that was going on there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you've ever been curious about the history of FreeBSD, uh, this is the third in our multi-part series. You should check it out. And uh, yeah, it's used by millions of servers across the world. And, you know, FreeBSD 13 is expected to land uh, in this spring. Ah, yes, that big number is coming along. Yeah, so we'll get there. Cool. Yeah, so check out the other parts, as Alan mentioned, and then you have the full picture of the FreeBSD history. Next uh, item is a mesh VPN using OpenBSD and WireGuard. So these are uh, some common combinations in the security space, OpenBSD and uh, VPN. So here we use WireGuard and it's a mesh configuration. And WireGuard, as they say, is a new coming to OpenBSD 6.8. And it looks like a simple and efficient way to connect computers. So they uh, own a few VPSs, hello Vulture, hello OpenBSD.Amsterdam, uh, that tend to be connected through filtered public services and or SSH tunnels. And that's neither efficient nor easy to manage. Uh, here comes the WG, WireGuard uh, era, where all those peers will communicate with a bit more privacy and ease of management. So <laughs> they say that Road Warrior meets server. Let's start with reading WG and if config man pages. There are private keys involved in the process, 
And as far as they can understand, there is no specific directive on how to store them. First, they thought about storing them in etcssl slash private, but then decided to treat those private keys like uh, they would do with wireless passphrases and store them in the hostname.if file. And using a pre-shared key isn't mandatory, but it helps because it, quote, offers a post-quantum resistance to the Diffie-Hellman exchange, unquote. So let's create and use one of those uh, for the peer-to-peer -peer connection. So that's an OpenSSL uh, RAND-Base64 and 32. Remember that key, so that will give you a string of uh, numbers and characters. Uh, it will have to be referenced in both peers configuration files and on the Road Warrior side, generate a private key and configure a basic WireGuard interface. So that is done using the WG key get, so the WireGuard key, and that um, wraps around this OpenSSL command from earlier to generate the key. And then you define the port and the network and net mask for that and define that it should be up. All right, and then you do a change mod so you can execute this and then you move on to the server side. You repeat that previous command as well. On the other side, or both of them, uh, we can now see that the public key using ifconfig and looking at the wg pub key line, there you can see it in the uh, show notes from the link, grab the public key from the server and reference in the road warriors configuration. To grab the public key from the road warrior and reference in the server's configuration. So you basically exchange the keys. So then on both sides, you mount a WG0 interface and check the connectivity. So a simple ping should do that for you. And uh, PFCTL is used to you know, read in the PF configuration. Both sides should be pinging each other now. Using the ifconfig, you can check the peer connection and to allow traffic on configured UDP ports in PFConf after the WG interface is created. You may want to set the server as the default router for the Road Warrior, uh, which is not what you want here. They're enabling remote connection to UDP and TCP ports to the server, ports that they don't want to be exposed directly on the WWW, the Wild Wild Web. Then they talk a little bit about the server-to-server -server configuration. That is a bit more involved uh, using a couple of WG peer commands. But it's all nicely explained, and commands and outputs are shown in the article, so you should not have a problem following this along. And a test later with iperf3 to see if the connectivity using ICMP is working nicely and how much bandwidth they get. And so, um, oh, they even have a nice diagram to see how, how it all ties together. Very nice. So yeah, check out the article, and uh, thank you to, at the end, Matt Dunwoody and Jason A. Donenfeld for the WG driver and to all OpenBSD devs to make all this fun possible, they write. Cool, very nice. Uh, next up, we have a guest blog over on the FreeBSD Foundation site. The foundation sponsored some work on FreeBSD's LLDB debugger driver, or, well, not the driver, but. Anyway, so with a FreeBSD Foundation grant, uh, Moritz Systems improved the LLDB support uh, for FreeBSD. The LLDB project builds on libraries provided by LLVM and Clang to provide a great modern debugger. It uses the uh, Clang AST and the expression parser, the LLVM just-in-time compiler, uh, and the LLVM disassembler um, so that it provides uh, an experience that just works. It is also blazing fast and more permissively licensed than GDB, the GNU debugger. LLDB is the default debugger in Xcode on macOS and supports debugging C, Objective-C, and C++ 
on the desktop and iOS devices and simulator. FreeBSD includes LODB in the base system. At present, it has some limitations in comparison to the GNU uh, GDB debugger and does not yet provide a complete replacement. It used to rely on an obsolete plugin model in LLDB that was a constantly growing technical debt. Uh, this project aimed to bring the LLDB support closer to the fully featured replacement for GDB and therefore for FreeBSD to feature a modern debugger for software developers. The legacy monolithic target support executed the application being debugged in the same process space as the debugger itself. The modern LLDB plugin approach used on other supported targets executes the target process under a separate LLDB server process. This improves reliability and simplifies the process and thread model in LLDB itself. In addition, remote and local debugging is now performed using this same approach. After the migration to this new process model, 32 and 64-bit x86 CPUs, the project focused on uh, reviewing the results of the LLDB test suite and fixing tests uh, as time permitted. The project schedule was divided into three milestones, each taking approximately one month and summarized with a detailed blog post. And they have all three of those linked here. During the work, uh, the FreeBSD project gained numerous improvements including improvements to the kernel, the userland base libraries, and the dynamic loader, and the LLVM toolchain on FreeBSD. The introduced changes are expected to ship as part of LLDB 12 and uh, are applicable to FreeBSD 13. The overall experience of using LLDB on FreeBSD for developers and advanced users on this rock-solid operating system reached the state known from other environments. Furthermore, the FreeBSD-focused work also resulted in generic improvements, enhancing LLDB support for Linux and NetBSD as well. And uh, that work was sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation and uh, done by Camille Reitarowski. Yeah, so we thank you for that, for sponsoring and for implementing that. And it benefits uh, all the other uh, BSDs as well. So it gets uh, not just for FreeBSD, uh, a good support for LLDB. Yeah, and it'll be nice to have uh, a modern debugger that can be included in the base system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, contributions to the FreeBSD Foundation as well as the other BSD foundations allow this sort of development and to fund this work. All right, then next up we have uh, host your CryptPad web office suite with OpenBSD. So this is over at the Data Swamp, uh, written by Soline. And in this article, uh, they will explain how to de deploy your own CryptPad instance with OpenBSD. CryptPad, for those who don't know it, is a web office suite featuring easy real-time collaboration of documents. Uh, CryptPad is written in JavaScript and the daemon acts as a web server. Ah, okay, so the prerequisites for that is you need to install the packages git, node, automake, and autoconfig to be able to fetch the sources and run the program. So that is... Uh, Fairly straightforward. Um, another web front-end software will be required to allow TLS connections and secure the network uh, access to CryptPad instance. This can be RelayD, HAProxy, Nginx, or LightTDBD. Uh, they'll cover the setup using HTTPD and RelayD because it's uh, right, readily available on OpenBSD, and so why not? Oh, uh, note that CryptPad developers will provide support only to Nginx users, okay? So we use uh, RelayD and HTTPD here. The installation is fairly easy. They recommend using a dedicated user's daemon, and we will create a new one with the command user at dash uh, M. They called it underscore cryptpad, so that you remember what this is for. Then you will uh, continue the software installation as the underscore cryptpad user. So you become that using SU. 
and then from there you clone the repo from git uh, then run automake and compile the thing and install it of course and also install the necessary uh, node modules to make it work that's all detailed in the article the configuration itself there are a few variables important to customize first it's the ihdp unsafe origin this should be set to the public address uh, on which cryptpad will be available this will certainly be an https link with a host name and they will use cryptpad.congru.eu so you can replace that with your own and the other option is uh, http safe origin which should be set to the public address which is different than the previous one cryptpad requires two different addresses to work and they will use in this one api.cryptpad okay and last but not least the admin email should be set to a valid one so that uh, people can find you or contact you in case there's a need uh, then they create an rc file to start the service oh and bin corn shell i haven't seen that in a while that people write their scripts in corn shell uh, it's relatively popular on openbsd and solaris okay is there anything corn shell specific in there that's uh needed that particular one doesn't yeah. look like it so what you but, yeah. uh, you know i learned about corn shell because the a lot of the zfs tests inherited from solaris are written in it um, and it does have some interesting stuff for variables uh, that make it useful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you the, the shell script is provided, of course, for the cryptpad start, and then you enable that and start it, of course. Then you make an admin account in the cryptpad instance itself by using a admin key, and that is generated using a uh, example key that's provided in the config.js. And that should be changed, of course, so that you can uh, use your own or that people don't find any, you know, unconfigured cryptpad uh, instances out there and use the same key for everyone. So that should be a unique key. Uh, then there's a backup section in the cryptpad directory. You need to backup the data and data stores directories so that you can uh, get back to where you were. And then they have a little bit of extra configuration for HTTPD. The Acme client is what they walk us through and the relay D configuration. So it's not too difficult, not too complicated. And at the end, you have a nice cryptpad instance running on your own public URL that is secure and encrypted. Very nice. Uh, speaking of um, <laughs> secure and encrypted, we have in our beast events this week, the OpenSense 20.7.7 release. Yep, so this is the incre incremental update to the last uh major release of OpenSense. So mostly just small stuff, updating, you know, sudo sqlite, openSSL, lighthttp, libreSSL, curl, etc. And updating the plugins for WireGuard, Tink, FRR, FreeRadius, and Acme Client. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. so build fresh sources. And okay, good to know. And you have new packages and a bit of uh, background things. Yeah, it looks like the, the main fix was uh, traffic graphs having broken links and the DNS blacklist not uh, in unbound, not reloading after an update, but those are fixed. Ah, okay. Uh, we want to also remind you about the introduction to OpenZFS 2.0 webinar on January 20th on noon Eastern, 1700 UTC that Clara Systems is doing. Yeah, so if you've been wondering, you know, what's the big deal about OpenZFS 2.0? Uh, how does it impact the pools I'm already running, uh, you know, do I have to upgrade to 13 to use it? And, you know, the answer is no, you can do it on 12, but there's a bit more involved in that. 
Uh, and, you know, how do I plan for future pools to take advantage of some of these new features? If you want to learn all of those things, uh, head over and sign up. Uh, and you can either attend the webinar live and ask questions, uh, or we will uh, send you the, the recording once it's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great that you're doing this. And so people should join that webinar. And uh, or if they can't because time zones, then they can uh, later go into the recording. But there's uh, for the people who are live, they have uh, they can ask questions, of course, and get their answers. Then we found for the people who haven't seen it yet, uh, BSD in Die Hard, the movie over on Reddit. Yep. Uh, so if you weren't already aware, if you watch very closely on when hacking into the computer or whatever on uh, during the first Die Hard movie, the best part. Uh, you can see the CEO workstation is running Nakatomi Socrates BSD version 9.2, and you have Z-level central core access with preliminary clearance that has been approved. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I remember, uh, what was it? The Euro BSD con in Poland, I think. No, Poland was the XKCD one, so it was sometime after that. Um, but around the time of the release of FreeBSD 9.2, the conference t-shirts had this printed mm -hmm. on the back of them, which was great. Yeah. Uh, and as someone pointed out, Devin Teske did a bunch of work to have this as one of the boot menus you can have, the like replacing the orb logo and so on, a little text menu to have this message come up uh, instead when you're booting uh, into FreeBSD. Yeah, now. so you have your own personal CEO workstation. <laughs> Very nice, yep. yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's a nice uh, reminder that, um, yeah, BSD is everywhere if you look close enough. And then we found uh, Managing Jails with Ansible, a showcase for building a container infrastructure on FreeBSD. Oh, yes, this is from last year's EuroBSDCon, if I'm not mistaken. This is the BSDCon. Oh, BSDCon. Oh, yeah, excellent. So that's um, a bit uh, more uh, fresh than the one from EuroBSDCon. Okay, so if you're new to uh, Ansible, then you can find all the introductory parts there. And to manage jails with Ansible is a good use case. Then we have bsd-hardware.info, where people can, you know, show off and compare what they have and what other projects or what other computers are using. And you can filter by a BSD variant and uh, what kind of parts, what supported hardware they have. So that's good if you're in the market for a new machine or just want to check if the machine supports it or what is supported. And so according to this, they have 1,068 tested computers, 19,010 tested parts, and some hardware trends and some vendor breakdowns. Ah, nice. And you can also submit your hardware details to them as well. Yeah, so they're building a database of hardware that's supported by the BSDs, any BSD. Yep. Oh, and yes, I spent a couple days, it was really days, uh, on a new wine chapter in FreeBSD's handbook. So that was contributed by Aaron Peters. And that was part of the Google Season of Docs. So that is the documentation version of Google, uh, well, <laughs> Google Summer of Code, probably. And it's for people who have um, experience uh, in, in technical writing, and they just team up with an open source project. And we gave a couple of projects out, and people picked those. And Aaron picked this one, and we said, okay, we do this uh, project here, and this is the uh result of that lots of good screenshots uh, yeah we we kind of went wild on this um but i think in wine you have a lot of gui elements and maybe we need to resize these images a little bit more 
but at least people can find the buttons they need to click on and find their way within the uh, GUI installers. And luckily, um, with that, uh, Alexander Leidinger, uh, which is NetChild at FreeBSD, also helped um, with the Homura parts, if that's pronounced correctly. So you can set up games and other applications that are not natively available, but run fairly good on the wine. So check it out uh, and report any bugs that you might find, any wording fixes still there. Uh, we'd be happy to take uh, your feedback. So before our feedback and questions, we always need to tell you to do backups. So for me, it was you know switching from one computer to the next. And what better way to do that is to restore your backups from the previous machine on your new machine. And that's what I did. I copied my tarsnap key over, adjusted my little config file, and then pulled down my backups that I did over the months and years previously on this new machine. And I downloaded, of course, the latest version with the latest backups on that, extracted that, and had all my files back that I now needed on the new machine. And that was quick and easy, and Tarsnet made sure that it was encrypted. So if you want to do backups like this, then go to tarsnet.com. They explain everything what you need to do. You create first your little key and register the service with them. The service is not very uh, expensive because it's if even if you have a lot of gigabytes to backup, it's very, very cheap. And so with a $10 uh, initial payment that you just pay down as you go along, uh, or just five dollars. It's it's not very. It's it's the price of a of a of an afternoon meal, I guess. And with that, you charge up your account, and then you can make regular backups from a cron job, for example. Or um, there's probably also desktop applications available if you need that. And Tarsnap will take the files, figures out what are the unique blocks among them, then deduplicates them, encrypts the rest, and that is in effect a much smaller backup size, and then this encrypted backup, which is still on your local disk, is sent to the AWS cloud where the Tarsnap encrypted uh, files are stored. And in case you need them files back like I did, you just pull them down. As long as you keep your keys, you can uh, access those backups. If you don't have the key anymore, not even the Tarsnap people can help you retrieve those backups. Yes, also, if you're interested, because Tarsnap provides the source code for the client, you can examine the search code and look for errors. And if you happen to find one, then there's a bug bounty. Uh, so in total, uh, Tarsnap has paid out quite a bit of money in bug bounties, uh, including uh, at least 250 separate bounties, I think. Some as small as, you know, you find a typo and he can pay you a couple of dollars. Uh, or, you know, people have found that if the config file has a line that's longer than 8,000 characters, it can cause a double free. Uh, and that particular bug was worth a couple hundred dollars and so on. But, you know, if you do find something wrong with Tarsnap, uh, you can get in touch with uh, Tarsnap and they will pay you uh, for the bug report. Yep. And so it's open source and you can look into each detail if you don't trust them, but you don't have to be paranoid to use it. But even paranoids will be happy to use Tarsnap. All right, uh, now it's time for the feedback and questions. And again, in the new year, we also want to hear from you. So send your questions, show ideas, anything that's on your mind to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Exactly, it, it doesn't have to be a question. It can be, here's an article I found that you should cover, or can you tell me more about this, or whatever. Any ideas you have, uh, you know, we've been doing, uh, well, I've been doing the show for 
seven years now uh very much running out of yeah. things to talk about I mean, <laughs> there's still there's still news but uh you know if you have any ideas to help keep it interesting that would yeah. be great for everyone. new things come out we can we can only make the show you want if you tell yeah, us what you want your show segment and you decide what we cover here the first one that we have this week is from scott with a zfs question and scott writes um Hi, I posted this question on FreeBSD forums and got no reply, so I thought I'd try you guys. Okay. Uh, is there a ZFS pool property that can prevent its automatic import? I have a galley back mirror, and when I manually attach the first provider, ZFS imports the pool, degraded, obviously. When I attach the second provider, ZFS resilvers the pool. Is there a toggle to prevent the automatic import, or must I export the pool first? So, during boot up, ZFS examines the zpool.cache file to find out what other pools should be imported. So in legacy ZFS, like uh, the ZFS built into FreeBSD 11 and 12, that'll be under slash boot slash ZFS slash zpool.cache. In OpenZFS 2.0, it's in slash etc slash ZFS slash zpool.cache. So that list is based on what was imported last. And, you know, if you zpool export, it will remove it from the list. And so that's the list that controls everything. But what you're describing here sounds like as soon as you Gelly attach, it's automatically doing an import, which seems strange to me. Like there would be a devd rule that would cause it to do something like that. Like normally ZFS isn't going to import the pool until you run the zpool import command. And so, you know, you say when you manually attach the first provider, ZFS is just instantly importing the, the half-built pool, which seems very strange. That's, that's not the default. Uh, something special is happening on your system there unless uh the zpool cache was there and it was the pool is trying to import but couldn't find any of the disks and then once you attach it was like ah i found some disks uh that could be the case so yeah you want to look at that zpool.cache file it's a packed nv list so it's not plain text but if you pipe it into less or whatever you can see some strings of plain text with pool names and you'll be able to tell probably but uh, if you just zpool export the pool, then it will not, it will remove it from the cache file. And when you're doing an import, I think it's the capital C flag. Is that in the newer ZFS 2.0 or is it in the old one as well? No, it's, it's something from the mm -hmm. older one too. There's a way to specify that you don't want to update the cache when you're importing the pool because uh, you can use the cache file while importing the pool to be faster because the cache file will know each disk from where it is and it can find it instead of having to search every hard drive on your system and be like are you part of this pool are you part of this pool um ah so when you do the zpool import if you just do dash o cache file equals none then it will uh, not add the pool to the cache file when you import it so that it won't uh, try to auto import it next time. But if you're still having this problem, what I would find most useful probably is zpool list and zpool status from before you attach Gelly and then you running Gelly attach and then running ZFS or zpool list and, and zpool status right after it because it shouldn't auto import like that. Like the there's an auto import that can happen at boot where basically there's an uh, an rc.dscript that runs and imports every pool um, that's in the cache file. 
And that's so that, you know, if your home directory is on a separate pool, it'll be there early enough. But if it's Gelly and that's not happening, then yeah, nothing should be doing an, a zpool import on your behalf in the middle of regular runtime when you're when you just manually run Gelly attach. Uh, so if that's still happening, that is strange and we would look into it. But I'm guessing it would have to be DevD or something. Uh, that maybe, I don't know if you're using a distro of FreeBSD that's trying to be helpful or, or what's happening there. Yeah. So manually export it. If you, when you do manually import it, if you set cache file equals none, it won't get cached. And um, if you're still running into trouble, uh, email us back those commands and we will uh, see what we can do to help. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next up is Bruce uh, with a copy paste on ESXi question. So Bruce writes, hi, uh, is there some trick we are missing on how to enable copy and paste into a virtual machine console window on ESXi running FreeBSD? It did not get, uh, it did not work on ESXi 6.0, 6.5 or 6.7, so we gave up. We are able to copy paste into a console window running CentOS on a different ESXi host, but have not figured out how to copy paste into a console window in FreeBSD. Uh, is it a combination of FreeBSD setting and VMware tools? They're running mostly FreeBSD 12.1 and 12.2. Uh, we mostly use SSH and rarely use the console, but it would be a great addition if we could figure it out. I imagine the copy paste depends on having the VMware tools. Uh, so if you don't have those installed and running, then you'll want to do that. Uh, to see, because, you know, uh, without the VMware tools, there's not really a way for the guest to tell the host, here's the data to copy to the clipboard. When you say a console, do you mean the, the raw, like, TTY thing, or do you mean, like, an X-term window? I think they mean the console from the machine itself, the console window that shows the machine. Well, again, you keep saying window. Do you mean... The raw FreeBSD like serial console, or do you mean like running a console like a terminal window in X? Oh, I think it's the latter, the the window that shows the the X uh, console. But it's just guessing. I don't know. Right. I expect it would be that. The other thing that might be different there is it could be trying to use serial or something, but that doesn't sound right. I don't have much experience with ESXi, but maybe somebody else knows yeah. the answer, and that's why we read these out for everyone instead of just emailing you the answer <laughs> exactly yeah. uh, because that's why we we like the questions we don't know the answer to as much as the ones we do because it helps us uh build a community by connecting the people that know these things to other people who have similar interests yeah we learned something along the way as well yeah i know there's lots of people using freebsd and esxi uh so i'm guessing some of them know how to make the copy paste work and they can share that with mm -hmm. us all I know from VirtualBox that you need the extensions as well to use the shared clipboards, but probably something yeah. specific to ESXi. Yeah, maybe someone out there. But knows. I, I kind of with them that I, I generally just go to SSH. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so hopefully someone else knows that. Uh, and next is Julian with an apology for Alan. Oh, wow. It's the year still fresh and people already apologizing. Okay, Julian writes, um, hey, Alan, missing FreeBSD. Wish I had uh, time to get back to it, but working at Google on Fuxia, and now I don't have time or extra neurons. Julian. Yeah, so his email was originally saying that he enjoyed our uh, year-end wrap-up with the, the Oh, yes. So, <laughs> Good, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I actually managed to catch up with uh, Julian earlier this week and, and get to chat with him a little bit about 
the git transition opens at fs 2.0 changes in beehive and arm and all the other interesting stuff that's been going on because he's been uh you know after being such an important part of FreeBSD and living and breathing it for so long, he's now at Google and hasn't really been able to keep up with what FreeBSD's been up to. Mm. Yeah, okay. I mean, people uh, are busy with other things. Life happens and uh, they cannot. Yeah, but uh, check out his comments on the history of BSD articles on our on the Clara website. Uh, he added some tidbits about the company he worked for providing the first machine that FreeBSD developers could use to to develop outside of their own machine, basically. Oh. Interesting. The first server that FreeBSD as a project actually had. Oh, so you were thinking of uh, getting him for an interview about that time? Um, he's pretty busy, yeah. but if, if we can get time, that would be good, yeah. Uh, he was also talking a bit about uh, NetGraph, which he worked on in 1990s, or started on in 1997. Ooh. Uh, and that it's, people are still using it today. Like I saw somebody earlier this week using it with Beehive. Yeah, it's still. Uh, to do the NAT for their VMs and so on. Cool. So yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out, but uh, hopefully you have uh, a successful time at uh, the, the Google Fuchsia project. And yeah, so... I think it's Fuchsia, or, as in the code. Oh, right, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I practice that for next time. Okay, uh, so yeah, these were the feedbacks for this week. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, start the fresh year with some optimism. And we will be back, of course, next week with fresh and new content yeah you know uh we've been here every single week for seven years and we're you know getting tired but we're not stopping anytime soon it's been a long time yeah. uh so for you especially i mean i've been just there with uh three quarters maybe but you you passed the halfway point uh you, you've been in more episodes than not uh yeah. so well, hopefully I get my setup here running uh, for the next time and then we'll be in our usual format. Again, thank you for listening and till next time. Yep. Have a good 2021. <laughs>